Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Abel, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers to thrive on camera and in life, and to make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the phrase, dealing with bozos and bullies. Because let's face it, it happens to all of us at least once or twice. But I will also note it's a matter of perception and perspective. Bozo, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, means a stupid or foolish person. Merriam-Webster goes for the bees, defining a bully as a blustering, brow-beating person, especially one who is habitually cruel, insulting, or threatening to others who are weaker, smaller, or in some way vulnerable. I'm sure we can think of a few people that fit the bill. My guest for this episode is Iggy Perillo, who helps leaders and educators do right by their people. Oh, love that. Iggy started her company, WSL Leadership, to get emotionally intelligent skills to people of influence so they can make the world a better place, training them to do the hardest part of great work more easily. Iggy conducts group and one-on-one coaching, masterminds, and experiential workshops designed to make it simple for leaders and educators to connect with their people, create meaningful change, and amplify positive culture. I love it. Welcome to the podcast, Iggy. Thanks so much for having me, Barbara. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy that I discovered you and that um, <laughs> and that you were kind enough to say yes to join me. So first off, and I know I mentioned this just before we hit record, I, I'm really curious. I see it all the time, especially in the entertainment and media, and also even in tech. How is it that we live in a culture where we, we reward success by promoting people to leadership positions and then don't support them in being leaders? Oh, I have no idea why this is so prevalent, but it's the worst. It is like the worst idea of corporate advancement, of organizational advancement, of human growth. Yeah, people are really good at doing the thing. Then they're in charge. Then they're like, cool, we'll put you in charge of other people doing the thing. So suddenly you're in charge of people and you're not doing the thing, which doesn't compute. And I think uh, the smartest organizations out there are finding ways to move people into. Um, I've, I've heard about this in universities where they have, oh, you've been a researcher for a long time. And your research is really getting traction. Cool. We're going to make you a senior researcher to let you even do more of this amazing work versus putting you in charge of the lab team. So now you have to manage all the people doing this work, right? So I think smart organizations are figuring this out. But I don't, yeah, I guess this is sort of this kind of capitalist hierarchy. Like, oh, you need to get a promotion. Promotion means you're in charge of more people. Somehow that that equals promotion. That's why we can pay you more because you're in charge of more people versus you can go deeper into doing even more of this amazing work that you have the skills in. So it is, um, I, I don't know the history of why we do it this way, but it is not a great plan. It doesn't work out well. We both see it work out poorly so many times. All the time. Just as you're saying that, like, I'm not an expert in economic history, but I love, that's kind of a fascinating question. Like, when did that happen historically? But um, certainly for anybody listening to understand in in my television background, it's like you make a great TV show. So we're going to reward you with more money, but we're going to not let you make TV shows anymore. You don't get to create anymore. (laughs) You get to be a manager and do reviews. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Fundamentally, it doesn't make sense. Yep. So in your experience, like how, how did you get into doing what you're doing? Well, my background is experiential education and learning. And my practice, my, my learning practice was leading our bound expeditions. So I took strangers out in the wilderness in Northern Minnesota, primarily for weeks at a time. And we would, in the summer, we backpack and canoe in the wintertime, we dog sled and ski. You get a bunch of strangers together, pop them in a bunch of boats, 
on a bunch of skis with some dogs, whatever, and you travel and you have to get from point A to point B in a very literal, linear sort of sense. But the reality of the trip is the goal is for everyone to take on leadership roles and for everyone to step into and understand how they impact the team and how they can be a good teammate all at the same time. And it is very uh, instant feedback, right? Either we got there or we didn't. Like, there's no like, well, you know, we can fudge the numbers. Like, no, we're literally there or we're not there. So it's very clear with what's happening. And I think it is this amazing opportunity and for this personal growth education that is immediate feedback, immediate feedback, immediate feedback, and so many potential ways for people to try new things, try different ways of leading, try different way, try like learn how, what their role in the team is. And really fundamentally, it's helping people learn what their strengths are so that then they could use those strengths beyond. The, the goal of an hour bound course is not to make you a great wilderness traveler, it's to make you a great leader or a person of character or someone who can be of service to other people in the world. So those outcomes are always prevalent. And I think those that, I mean, I've led over 50 courses like with groups of sort of strangers coming together helping them be amazing leaders. And so that is sort of, that was my practice and developing, oh, here's what's going to work for people really well. Here's how I can set people up for success. Here are the real skills that they need. Maybe you can read a map okay, but what you really need is to be able to communicate what you're reading on this map to the team around you, for example. So it really, I think, helped me focus in on the power of really good leadership. Wow. Okay. As a communication coach, I want to circle back to what you just said, that part of the big part of this leadership is being able to communicate your leadership. But you know, Again, everything in my head goes back to a TV show. And I was literally thinking, imagine if Survivor was about leadership and human potential instead of competition. Mm, right, right. And there, <sighs> is, I, there is a place for, there is healthy competition. I'm not like anti-competition all the time, but there's so much unhealthy competition that I would say we, it's hard to tell the difference. And uh, people, I also have like played a lot of collegiate sports, did all these types of things. Like I love competition. I love winning. Like who doesn't love winning, right? But the reality is if we're winning at someone else's expense all the time, if we win and we don't learn and grow from that experience, right. we're not really helping ourselves out. If we win a million awards, cool. What did we learn from that? Hopefully something, but it, we often don't learn a ton from winning because we're like, I did it right. Woo, pat on the back. We learn a lot more often from losing if we're thoughtful and if we have a growth mindset toward that too. So how did this translate then into starting going from outward bound to doing these kinds of trainings and really focused on leadership and you know working with corporations and individuals? Uh, I'd like to say it was this very seamless transition, but it really wasn't. <laughs> what outward bound gave me was this understanding of really what emotional intelligence looks like in action, right? I think you can read about emotional intelligence and you can sort of see people out there in the world and you're like, oh yeah, they're kind of they are, they're good with people or like, oh, they're really empathetic. Or, you know, we kind of have these sort of quasi ideas of what these things mean. But I think that that translation for me was like, I can go talk to leaders. I really actually love co-leadership roles because that was sort of one of the models of our bound. You have two people in charge. And so you see that some places in, in various industries, like the, it's a president and a vice president, but they really co-lead or, you know, like kind of a, a team leadership. So any like individual or team leadership dynamics, I can go and really pretty easily trans like talk to these people and figure out what are you actually missing? Like what pieces of this, these sort of emotionally intelligent skills are you either missing or have underdeveloped or do you not even realize you need? Because that literally happens sometimes. People out there are like, oh, I'm doing great. Everything's fine. I wonder why my performance reviews say everyone hates me. Weird. Who knew? You know, like people don't quite catch the feedback or they don't always perceive what's going on. And that's really the corporate environment, right? Like the people giving you feedback might be a form and they're people you see for five minutes a day, once a year, you know, like it's not, 
this not always really smooth connections and not always flowing to people's brains very easily what they need to work on and what they need to do. So I think that is sort of part of the translation to working with groups and teams. And also I think play is actually important and experience. So it's easy if we're on a trip to be like, we got there or we didn't get there, but to create that sense of like, oh, either we get this or we don't get this with a group of people is I think another skill that translated to my work with groups uh, in different types of organizational environments. So I just love that that's really about, in your case, transferable skills that are oh, yeah, 100%. awesome and identifying that. Then it goes into another you know question that I had um, and not wanting to sound snarky, but it actually very real that you tapped into. How often does a quote unquote bozo or a bully self-identify either on one of these trips or in one of your workshops? Uh, I would say never, pretty much, pretty basically never because we all think we're doing the best we can to meet our yeah. needs. And when we look at ourselves, I, we think we're good people generally. We think we maybe have some things to work on if we're sort of open to that, like, oh, you know, I could be better at this or better at that. But, and Bozo and Bully, I think you also pointed this out a little bit. These are, uh, those are words that will catch your eye, right? You're like, whoa, those are pretty strong labels. People don't identify as either ever, but people, I mean, will say like, ah, oh, you know, something's not quite right. Or this seems like I'm doing so much work, or, but really what they'll say is like, I'm so burnt out. This mm -hmm. is so hard. Leadership is so stressful to me. Most likely the people in this like is so stressful. I'm burnt out. This is so hard are perhaps <laughs> it is hard because they keep trying to figure out how to manage being not perceived as a bozo or a bully from the people around them. I'm like, oh, let me help you make this easier. Let me help you deal with conflict better. Let me help you communicate better. Let me help you bring these emotionally intelligent pieces in to understand the people you're working with. So you create an experience that is a positive culture. I think organizational culture um, has a lot to do with leadership. Like leaders set the tone for the organizational culture in every way possible. And without being attentive to that, like, well, that's just how the organization is. So many people come into an organization like, well, it's just how it is here, shrug. And you're like, wow, it's terrible here. And you are now a part of that machine making it terrible here. So I think helping leaders don't identify as bozos or bullies. They spend a lot of effort not trying to be perceived as them sometimes. And I can make it easier for that to happen for people. It's hard to watch people who want to do really amazing work just struggle to do this work in a way that's sustainable for them as individuals. Well, one thing for all of us is, is tapping into being a little bit more compassionate. Oh, absolutely. Right? Wow. Because it's easy to label. But then I guess there, I want to go back to the communication component in, and, and also just what you said about culture, that yay, it's top down. So I always want to talk about the communication component, but as I'm thinking this through, there's also, there's, and I'm curious what you see, generational shifts. Um, shifts in power structures, um, how people came up. So depending on where you were trained or not, I guess I'm getting it. It's just, you know, the power structure is changing and the workforce is changing and what we're willing to put up with is changing. And the idea of what a good culture is changing and even our measurement, because maybe in the past it was only sales. Like if we achieve this at all cost and that's all there is, but now we're looking at different metrics. So that was a lot that I just sort of, you know, waffled out. So if you could just jump in there anywhere, Iggy, and guide us through this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. There's been actual research that the mood of a leader, and by mood, we mean literally what you think of as mood. Like, are they kind of optimistic? Are they pessimistic? Are they cranky? Are they pretty happy-go-lucky? The mood of a leader directly impacts the culture of an organization, just their mood, right? And 
we were like, well, that's just the kind of person I am. I'm just a grouch, you know, whatever. Like people embrace sort of personality mood, you know, like there's sort of this messy overlap in there. But we can change our defaults is one thing. So you can change your mood. People can, not everyone needs to be optimistic and sunny. And there's research that optimist, optimists, optimists get taken advantage of more often than realists, which is very funny research out there too. So if we have the mood creating the culture, mood of leaders creating culture within an organization, and then we have people in an organization who are suffering because of that culture, right? And one of those classic cultures is we get the job done no matter what, we revenue goes up, 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 you know, production goes up, 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 that's it. That's how we measure success is growth, constant growth. That's it. That's all we have as a metric is growth, progress, you know, whatever we have, it has to be increasing. It has to be awesome all the time, which is unrealistic and which is also creates these like really toxic, cesspool sort of cultures in there. And so back to how communication of a leader plays in, if a leader is trying to impact or influence culture consciously, they do it unconsciously all the time that you know just your leadership like texting someone at 3 a.m that is setting a kind of garbagey tone for like when work hours are for your people down the line like it all filters down if it's okay for me the boss like oh i'm just gonna like send this out on a sunday when you know no one's at work on sunday but you know whatever i happen to be suddenly everyone else in the organization is like oh my gosh i need to be working sundays now Ugh. and that is very stressful for people who maybe that's not <laughs> that's not what they signed up for fundamentally and so if leaders are going to be conscious about how they're creating the culture and I would say how they're teaching culture in their organization. I talk a lot about leaders as educators. You are, as a leader, constantly teaching the culture of your organization to your organization members, your teammates, your people, whoever they are within your team. So to be conscious of how you do that takes really thoughtful communication at times. You can be frustrated. You can be really angry. You can have a range of emotions. And in fact, the more aware you are of your range of emotions, disappointment, all these different things. And the more you can communicate those well to the people around you, the more they will understand basically that you're a human, which is great, that they can be humans, which is great. And that builds this whole concept of psychological safety that people can grow, learn, ask questions, fumble, screw stuff up a little bit, get back on track. And that really builds growth in an organization because you're right, what you were saying before, the people are not, people are less willing to tolerate the sort of toxic culture, garbage, you know, culture organization. And so they don't take those jobs. They move somewhere else. They leave quickly. This whole idea of like having to churn through staff to get work done. The problem is your culture. If you're churning through staff and the problem of your culture is your leadership fundamentally and how leadership is teaching and communicating culture throughout the organization. This notion of psychological safety is really interesting to me now. And I'm actually a, a client and I are reading a book about it together. Oh yeah. It's so great. I, I hope it's Amy Edmondson. She did like yes. research on it. She's so good. Anything she does, her TED talk is like, if people want to get to know her and her work, she has a couple of great little TED talks that are like, oh yeah, we need to treat people well. And she did her research in hospitals. So people were literally dying. Like death was the negative outcome. Like there were higher fatality rates in hospitals or even on floors in hospitals that had lower psychological safety. So people felt like they couldn't, you know, question something or bring something up or admit a mistake or basically learn and grow. Like there's no space for people to learn and grow because we don't learn in a linear fashion. We kind of go up and down, we plateau, we go down, we go back up. That's how we learn. We, we're not on a linear learning trajectory. So to make room for that learning and growth curve, you everyone learns more over time. But if you don't make room for that linear, like non-linear growth curve, people clam up, everyone just stays in their little, you know, isolates. People feel pressured, people feel anxious, people don't bring forward like, hey, this seemed a little weird. And in a hospital setting, the hey, this seems a little weird could have really dramatic consequences on someone's health and well-being. So yeah, I love her research. I love her work. 
He's a great speaker too. Your condensed version is fantastic. So thank you. <laughs> and for Thanks. anyone listening, you can here's real life example is when you're all around the conference table or even in the Zoom room and whatever thought bubble you have and you either feel safe to address some concern you have, like that's an unrealistic deadline or something, or you say nothing. And then we hit stasis and then we're stagnant and there we are. We're not stagnant in like a good place in no. those moments. We're stagnant in like a little cesspooly kind of location. Like, oh, I guess no one's gonna, I guess this is fine here. I guess this is the culture here. I guess this is how we do things here. And it's becomes like, Right, I mean, and what we're another, willing to tolerate. Yeah, and it becomes soul-crushing to the people in those spaces. They're like, oh, I guess that's just how it is. It's terrible here. Well, speaking of soul-crushing, as you were talking to it, reminded me, so, you know, because uh, I want to get into actually the title of the episode and just mm. tips you may have for like how to deal with bozos and bullies. And as I was thinking about this, I realized, you know, depending on where you are in an organization or in your career and where your boss is or your, you know, whoever you may be identifying as a bozo or a bully that you have to deal with, that person likely is also managing up and feels that their boss is a bozo or a bully. And so it's, it becomes a really big awareness factor of, of uh, I don't know, the bozo bully hyperloop. Um, you know, and we're, just, we're just, I love uh, it. I love the bozo bully hyperloop. That is, but yeah. But, yeah, but realizing, I mean, it goes back to part of the question about having compassion and realizing we are all trying to do the best with what we have. And so when I feel like I don't have control over the situation or here's what I'm working, it's like, what are some suggestions you have in, in the Iggy Perlo playbook? Uh, well, first you pointed out a really great thing. Power dynamics are real. Like you might be the new junior intern on the, you know, on the team and you notice some really, I would say just garbage behavior of some sort. And you're like, Ugh, can I even speak up? Ugh, I'm going to lose my job. Like, Ugh, I'm going to get, you know, shamed in this very non-psychologically safe environment, whatever it is. So there there are super real power dynamics based on position, based on uh, identity, based on his seniority with the organization. All of that is valid. All of that is super real. All of that keeps people from saying things. And that all of that also supports bozos and bullies in the organization. If their boss is a bozo and bully, they're like, well, that's how we do it here. We, you know, we just railroad my ideas through and everyone just get out of my way. Like, you know, whatever it is like that, that is because of like the sort of cultural, the culture of the like hierarchical food chain, basically. So if your boss, your person, whoever you have to work with, it doesn't necessarily have to be a boss, but it can be a coworker, a teammate. Mm -hmm. It can be someone else is really in this bozo and bully <laughs> vibe a little bit. I think uh, one easy first step is to try and step back. Like we get, like amped up by it. Someone's like, oh, they're doing that thing again. I hate that thing. That thing pisses me off. They're just doing this to piss me off. I hate them, right? It's a very fast train from that thing happened to I hate them. Like it's, we, and if that happens, if this is like the fourth or fifth or hundredth time, we're like, I know I, that just confirms I hate them. Now we're in confirmation bias. Like they're just, they're going to do that thing again. Don't worry. I still hate them. They still do the thing. Um, so to try and break some of these chains, uh, I often suggest to people that they step back and look at what needs that behavior is trying to meet for that person, which takes a lot of compassion and it takes some empathy. So this person is doing that thing like, oh, they're setting an unrealistic deadline. That's a great example. So what need does this activity meet for them? And it might be setting an unrealistic deadline or maybe it's yelling at people to meet the deadline or maybe it's putting pressure on people. Like there's a lot of pieces, but I would try to figure out 
a specific behavior, right? Not a like vibe, not a like, well, this is how it always happens. Like what is the actual behavior that is problematic? And if you look through the behavior, is it like, oh, they actually just yell at me about the deadline. Like I feel the tone is aggressive when they talk to me about the deadline. Like that's a behavior. Yelling is a behavior you can observe. You can put down a day and time you've seen that or, a, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> the all caps, maybe they're not yelling at me. They're just excited. I talked to side note, someone in an organization once were like, oh yeah, the VP just writes in all caps all the time because they want to show enthusiasm. And we're all like, why is he screaming? I'm like, okay, well, maybe you need to talk to your VP when he messages you about this because that is funny but you can see but how wait, people did like, they oh. feel psychologically unsafe to mention it to the vp that that was uncool uh, i was talking <laughs> to someone who was a uh in the was a uh the like education manager and she's like yeah we need to talk to him about that like i think she felt like she had a relationship that she could mention that and be like okay we know that you're excited and <laughs> it kind of doesn't land all well all the time people don't always know they think they everyone thinks they're doing the best they can so if you're looking at that if you assume they're trying to do the best they can and but then you can also think about, well, what need are they trying to meet with this behavior? Is the, and I am a fan of William Glasser's sort of five basic needs because it's a simple model. I love simple is good. Simple is so good. There are many ways to look at needs. Maslow is popular. I am very anti-Maslow, which I should write a book on that, why I don't like Maslow, but I love Glasser. Wait, can so, we do a sidebar? Why don't you like Maslow? Maslow's hierarchy of needs mm -hmm. starts with, you need survival things first, and then it goes up and up and up to uh, self-actualization. Right. And and classically, like, well, maybe you get stuck here in the middle with like, you know, social, you know, meeting your social need and meeting its other needs. Not everyone gets to self-actualization is one problem of this. I'm like, but yet people don't feel alive and don't feel seen as humans unless they feel self-actualized. So this idea that you can't quite get there is problematic to me. The mm -hmm. idea that you need to support security and safety first, I believe uh is why schools have metal detectors and not art programs because we are then we're providing safety we're providing security but we're not letting people engage and self-actualize and promote themselves who they are as individuals as people right funding is limited in some places and also uh, i believe maslow did his research with the oh i'm gonna get it wrong but i'm gonna actually do the my hottest second of research to make sure i say the right thing i think he did research with the cree nation is that right uh, and they had this beautiful um, scale that was uh, his hierarchy, like goes up and up and up to smaller and smaller, smaller levels. And uh, the model that he essentially co-opted, to be honest, was like that the top was cultural perpetu perpetuity, community actualization in the middle, and then self-actualization on the bottom. You started with self-actualization and you move up to support your community and like the culture of your community at the top. And so... He basically took something that was, I think, kind of cool and made it kind of terrible. Oh, and this was, uh, he did his research with the, the Blackfoot Nation, the Alta people. So um, those are my problems with Maslow. Ooh, good. I, can, I, I, I feel like I got to mind the time because Iggy, I could keep you here all day. But so keep going. So, so let's go to the, um, the hierarchy that you do or the list oh. of needs that you do like. Yep. I love Glasser because it's not a hierarchy is one part, which is mm. uh, great. So although he says like you need to meet your physiological needs first or else those will distract you from everything else. Like if, if you know, if there was no air, if you were underwater and you couldn't breathe right now, that is going to be your primary need to meet. Like you're not going to be like, well, you know, I'm going to think about some other things right now. So that's why kids need school lunches. Absolutely. That's why we need to feed people like yeah. food matters. And there's this is a whole other side of research around uh, chronic stress due mm. to many reasons people have chronic stress in their lives and food insecurity is a chronic stress in the lives of many people in our world and with that insecurity your brain 
does not function as well. Like there's that's like the whole neuroscience side, which I mean, we could talk that all day too. If people are fed, holy cow, they can like, and they feel like fed, like people have regular access to food. They feel secure in their ability to eat. Okay. That piece of stress is gone. Mm -hmm. Air, we can breathe. Got it. Okay. We're, we're doing well in our security needs or our, you know, survival needs, but that security is a part of that. So if I feel threatened all the time, I'm also not going to fare well. If I, if you, I feel like someone is psychological safety again, plays into this a little bit in the most sort of weirdest environments where if I feel like if I say or do anything, I will be punished immediately. That's actually, I don't feel very secure there. I'm not going to do well. But so we got security and safety, psychological, you know, the physiological needs met, but then there's only four other needs. And at any given time we're meeting, we're acting, our behavior is trying to meet one of these needs. Uh, And there's not a priority order to them. They could just be any of them anytime, but I have to go through them in an order because we have, we're linear in this world, but one is love and belonging. So anytime my behavior is trying to help me feel love and belonging, a sense of connection, a sense of, I have a place here. The second one is freedom. And that means choice freedom. And choice freedom is really also looks like autonomy. Like I have the ability to make choices. I have the ability to do things and like sort of control what happens to me in my environment. The third one is power or influence. I have the ability to like have an influence or impact on what happens to me, like outside of myself in the world around me. I can impact and influence things. And the last one, which is counterintuitive, but perfect is for fun. And so I will do things because my behavior is trying to help me laugh, play, enjoy things, or fun is also the reward for hard work. So to feel a sense of accomplishment, to feel a sense of like, oh, this was, this was a great thing. I loved it. So we have love and belonging, freedom, power, or fun after we meet our basic survival security needs, you know, kind of in there to a minimal level. Like we don't need to like meet them for sure all the time. We need to be minimally survival needs. Then everything else will meet one of these other needs. And so if we're looking at a bozo or bully, how is their behavior? What we can try and guess, we can speculate. This makes, this puts us into a mode of being curious versus judgmental. When we are judgmental, I, they did a stupid thing. I hate them. Everything's terrible here. Doesn't really serve us well, fundamentally. If we move into that curious space of what need is that behavior trying to meet? We're looking at the behavior. We're looking at what it's trying to meet. And then we can test it. We can talk to this person. We can kind of get the vibe of them. The classic, you know, uh, power hungry leader who's like, just do what I say because I say it, you know, this kind of classic stereotype, which is not always true, but we like to throw that stereotype on people. We can maybe see evidence in other places like, oh, they they seem to arbitrarily change things all the time to make people do something different. They, they seem to be the people who really like saying jump and watching people jump. So they're going to try and do this in all these different ways because that meets their power need. Maybe you see evidence of that, but it also puts you in a place to open a conversation with people and to start talking to them like, hey, this is a behavior trying to meet a need. Is there a better way we can meet this need that involves a behavior that doesn't have such a negative impact on the rest of us, right? The people who are in fact impacted by that behavior, it's not awesome. It's not meeting my need to be feel yelled at or it's not meeting, it doesn't serve me well to feel like I have deadlines, you know, crushing me all the time. But what is the need that that is meeting? If it's growth, 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 like, you know, like up, metrics need to go up all the time, it's worth talking about. I think there are ways to meet metrics all the time and to grow and to expand and be realistic about it without crushing people along the way, right? So there might be some behavior that needs to be changed. There may be some communication that needs to change. Maybe there's a, uh, a sense of purpose. I think we exchange money for purpose a lot of times. Like, well, they don't feel very invested in this organization, but we'll pay them more. Then they'll do a good job. Like, maybe. On the counter flip side, oh, it's a nonprofit. We're going to pay them nothing because they're really into the purpose. Mm, 
also not so great fundamentally, you know, both of these systems, the sort of capitalist influences of those systems are problematic on both ends of that sort of spectrum. And so finding alignment of purpose, finding alignment of values, those are beautiful ways to talk about why, why, do, why do we have this need at all is a great theoretical conversation. But in the moment you're looking at this behavior, what need is this behavior trying to meet? And how can we meet this need in a better, different, more effective way? And that I think helps people then explore other possibilities for solutions, right? Because I can think all day about like, oh, that leader is such a jerk. Like, oh, they're yelling at all their, you know, texts, which is fine. And there are people who can be like, cool, I'm just gonna accept that. It's not gonna bug me, I'm gonna go on. And there are people that that's like the rock in the shoe that gives you the blister and then your foot hurt, you know, like that is like just gonna wear you down over time, like one little bit at a time. So how to take productive action? This is one pathway toward productive action, looking at needs, looking at behavior, trying to find a pathway, a solution that meets needs with better, different, more uh, more team oriented, more positive culture building, more communicative behavior down the road. This is fantastic. And you know what's funny as you said that too, is I have, um, I don't know, a piece of artwork I got online that's Ted Lasso quoting, isn't it Walt Whitman? Be curious, not judgmental. Oh, maybe, it may be. Yeah, I love it. But that's anyway, it's a lassoism now. And just as you said that, I was like, ah, oh, you're right. The other thing too, is one, what a great list just to, you know, any employee or anybody to ask themselves, not only in the managing up, but about ourselves, because I'm a big believer in like finding where you thrive. And so asking the, the Glassberg questions actually can help you identify like, this might not be the right place for me. And, and trying to, you know, fight this. I mean, you, you, right. You go down to your list of things going, you know, I've been here this long and I'm trying to affect these things. I need to go, you know, w where I can bloom and, and grow. And, and maybe this is not the right place for me, whatever that is. Um, and I found that in myself in, in some work situations. And then the other sort of couple of things you touched on one is learning to detach, which is a really healthy mindfulness exercise for all of us in life. The other thing too, is just to ask yourself, what's the lesson here? Like, well, how can I learn and grow? Like I'm here and I'm frustrated or I don't feel good. Uh, I don't know. What's the greater good? What's the higher lesson? What can I get out of this? Instead of, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say, instead of being so hyper-focused on my bozo or my bully and, and projecting all of my stuff onto them, instead of looking and going, huh, what's going on with me? I think those are great points. And also, I bet if you are recognizing a bozo or bully in your organizations, you're not alone, probably. Like, you're probably not the only one. And I think there is something to be said from finding support from other people who are like, oh, have you noticed this? Great. Cool. What can we do together then to, like, shift this behavior? Or, I mean, sometimes we need to reality check our perceptions, right? Like, oh, my gosh, could you believe they're yelling all the time? And someone else is like, oh, I just took that as being enthusiastic, right? You know, like we, we, we read so much into the intentions and everything about other people. But yeah, what can I learn from this is a great question. I love asking people that. I love people asking that. And eventually though, many people are at the point where like, I'm done with learning patience in this organization right now. Like, cool, know your limits. Uh, I love Annie Duke's new book, Quit. Know when to quit. Like, it is okay to quit and not basically torture yourself in an environment that is not serving you well. And she would say, if you're thinking, should I quit or not? You should have quit already. Like that, that wrestling with a thing 
with wrestling with quitting means you have wasted time and energy that you should have put into the next thing because you should have already quit that last thing, which is great. I love her. Uh, like she gets straight to the point of it. So that's another side tangent, I'm sure. Iggy, I just, I could just Iggy all day, but you know, a, a little personal one that goes into that asking of the lesson is I had to learn the hard way or just anyway, starting out in the music business, which was brutal. It, it's not always personal. Oh yeah. It's not, it's, it may not even be about you at all. At all. <laughs> it may have nothing to do with you. And you're back there being like, Ugh. we, we read, we assume intentions of other people and we assume intentions are directed at us for some reason. Like sometimes it's just not, it had nothing to do with you. You were just like, literally people are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like the, the boss storms by all angry and like, oh, the boss is mad at me. They just stormed by me all angry. When in reality they were, you know, just hurrying to get to a dentist appointment. Like you, it has nothing to do with you maybe like, there's no, we read so much into things, into words, into whatever. And that is, it's, it's hugely liberating. Yeah. Can you, can you no longer take things personally? Okay. Here's a quote that I pulled out of um, one of your amazing email newsletters. And so I think this is a really great point. How to know when to flex versus when to be flexible. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, yes, I think that's a beautiful, like many things, a practice <laughs> that we need to learn a lot. And I think that- What does for, it mean to begin with? Uh, when to flex and when to be flexible, like when to flex your strength, like when to hold a firm line, when to be like, actually, no, it, like this is a moment where it is my way or the highway, for example, or this is how we are going to do things right now. Like, this is it. Like I am deciding, it's been decided, we're done, you know, and that looks obviously many different ways in different spaces or yeah, the decision is made. We're not discussing anymore or no, this, you are going to do, you know, I will expect this to be done or whatever it is. This is the deadline. I'm not going to change it. You know, whatever these different parts might be. So that's flexing, flex your strength a little bit, when to stand firm uh, basically. And then when to be flexible, when to look at it and be like, well, you know what, this deadline, maybe we could switch it or like, oh wait, maybe we don't need all these parts to fit, be done on that time. Or, you know, whatever it is. I think there is a, um, being flexible just means being open to change or being open to different solutions that are, that could change the situation in different ways. And a lot of that, I think fundamentally comes down to my awareness of other people, cognitive empathy, me, me being aware of how other people feel and think that's the cognitive part of empathy. And the other part is being very clear on my personal values. Like what, how am I acting? I'm probably acting to try to meet one of my needs, which is true, but I'm always acting in service of my personal values. And if my personal values can be met in different ways, if my behavior can meet my needs in different ways, maybe everyone will be much happier, much healthier. We will be more productive. We'll be more creative. People will feel more freedom. You know, like basically I can meet other people's needs better when I meet my needs in a way that doesn't limit their ability to meet their needs or put a like damper on their personal values or put a damper on how they want to do their work or their autonomy, different parts of how they operate in the world. So can you give a real life example of what that would mean? Mm, yes, <laughs> I, I'm sure I can. Uh, I was talking with an organization lately. Was, they had a, a, a group of leaders sort of in charge of a team, uh, you know, sort of different kind of, and they had different roles that they decided out. And one was like, here's how it's going to be. I'm going to do this role. You're going to do that role. You're going to do that role. And uh, one, of the, one of the people on the team was like, uh, I don't, I don't want that role. <laughs> like, you know, they were like, they're not into it for very many reasons. And there's this opportunity then there's like, we're at a, basically we're in a conflict, right? Like two people want to do the same role essentially is what's happening. And one could say, well, I'm doing it too bad. 
suck, you know, suck it up. And the other one can say like, well, I'm going to rally everyone around me and make them all hate you. And so then you will do what I want. You know, like there are a lot of messy ways to do this. Right. And in the, in this type of, in this environment, there actually wasn't a specific hierarchy. It wasn't one person's job to like hold the other person to, to tell the other person their job. So they had to sort it out together, which became this much more complicated conversation, right? They both, if they both were going to like flex and be like, no, I'm going to do this job out of my way, um, which is a little bit what happened until someone crumbled, right? Like, so is that really good that you are going to flex and be strong and like basically not let anyone like not in, even engage and really things got maybe more mm, aggressive or just really kind of cruddy behavior started happening. People were felt yelled at, people felt minimized, people felt excluded, people felt ganged up on, like all these things were started to happen in this sort of co-working relationship when they should not have been that, they should not have flexed that much, right? It didn't serve anyone. Everyone's unhappy. Everyone's like, I need to watch my back because they're going to stab me in the back. Everyone, uh, the other half of the people were like, I just got like kicked to the curb. How do I need to claw my way back into this? You know, it was super terrible, unnecessary flexing, a lot of unnecessary flexing in that situation versus uh, another organization where the um, I was working with the the it's a, it was a small organization. The leader was realizing, like, I don't think people are bringing me their problems. Like, I think they maybe they were concerned that people were either intimidated or they didn't feel like they could say something or they didn't feel like they could you know, move things forward that were problematic. And so this leader is like, well, I don't, I don't know how to do this because I do need to make decisions. I do need to hold the vision. Like the, the structure of the organization was fundamentally fine. And, you know, it's just how they need to roll along. And uh, so instead of being like, Hey, I just want you all to do what I say. And like, here's your procedure for, if you have a problem, go talk to this person, whatever, have a committee. Uh, they decided to instead pursue an avenue of like understanding and trying to learn, well, why, what problems can't you bring forward? What's holding you back? What am I doing that might be holding you back? What are like the situations? What are the pieces of the situation that is making this not awesome for us? Because they realized if people didn't bring problems forward, you know, they would sort of not fester necessarily, but like they're still there. They don't go away because you ignore them. They're just kind of these little bumps in the road. Like, I guess this is just a bumpy road, whatever. When you could have, you know, the, this leader was much more invested in making the road smoother. So instead of flexing and just saying, deal with it they decided to to be more flexible around exploring what was going on understanding and then trying to create systems that support people like oh i actually do want these problems to come forward i actually do want to know about these things and i don't want people to just you know walk into my office and tell me how terrible things are all the time like we need to have some structure here so i don't feel you know as the leader in this organization um ganged up on <laughs> fundamentally and I want, but I want people to be, I want to be accessible to the people in a way that's functional and works for them. So they are in the process still, I guess, of building this flexibility into how they operate and within that organization versus this is how I'm doing it. This is what you're doing. Pipe down and do your job, I think. Well, if I'm hearing you, and this was really great, is in the second version, you have a leader who's doing their best to be in alignment with their values. And in the first scenario, I'm hoping it's a little bit out of alignment, not that I want them to be out of alignment in their life, but it also, then it goes back to the thing. It's like, they, if somebody may be flexing because they feel powerless in other parts of their life. Yeah, possibly. Or they're I, like, no, this is our goal. And I'm the only one who can get us to the goal. Like, why do you have any other people on the team if you're the only one who can get you to the goal, right? This sort of interesting sort of ego twist around like, no, I'm the best person for this. And I'm the only one who can do it this well. Like, maybe weird you're gonna be very lonely in that role then like 
you're not going to be able to build a team fundamentally. Like really the problem is like, am I going to cultivate a team that can do more than I could do individually? Or am I going to throw that, kick that team to the curb because no one could do it as well as I could? Wow. That's a good example of people needing to learn to be, there's no win in being the smartest person in the room. Well, not if that's your whole, if that's your mission, <laughs> if that's it, if that's the pinnacle of your achievement, you could probably be doing more with yourself that is more productive for the rest of us. Yeah. Oh, Iggy, you're fantastic. So how do um, people find you and, and do experiential trainings and, and go deep into the Iggy Perilla world? Uh, they can find basically all the things that I do at WSLleadership.com. And that stands for Work, Sport, Life Leadership, by the way. I work with leaders. I work with educators. I work with athletes. It's all kinds of people. So WSLleadership.com will get you to my newsletter, my podcast, my things, my services, blah, 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 all the stuff. Basically me. <laughs> I want to closing, I want to make a mention for your podcast because you love books the way I love books. Oh, great. We didn't even talk about books. That's a whole other thing. Well, we'll figure well, no, that we'll, out. We'll, we'll, do, we'll figure that out. But I just want to find out what, you know, what's off the top of your head, like, you know, in your top three or what else you're reading mm. now or what's getting you excited. Uh, well, top three right now, I'm very excited about Quit by Annie Duke, reading that. I just uh, read The Dawn of Everything, and that's uh, Graber and Wengrow, which is fascinating work. I'm going to be recording an episode on that next week. But one of my all-time, like, you know, in the live, the catalog, you know, the whatever canon. library of, <laughs> yeah, of my podcast, uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck, popular forever, such a great book. Um, Atomic Habits, which was a very interesting conversation I had about that. That one has been really popular. Uh, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown has been like, those are, I think are the sort of the, the couple that are sort of always perennially popular in the world. But yeah, what are you reading right now? Now that you brought it up, I have to ask what, what's interesting to you in your world? Well, one reading? thing I'm reading right now and absolutely love with is Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act. Hmm. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And I actually have been reading it in tandem with the 40 Rules of Love, which is a novel oh, about okay. um, Rumi and, and Shams Tabriz, but they, they actually um, intersect with each other. So really great fiction, reading Pachinko. I'm very, very late to the party on that book. And it's actually going into season two as a on Apple Plus. And then some of my perennials. So yes, I have a whole shelf devoted to Brene Brown. I have different shelves. And I'm also a big fan of Stephen Pressfield and his books around creativity and resistance, which are oh. fantastic. Tell me the I titles of some of his books. I might've read one recently, but I'm not like it's, the name is very familiar, but I'm not sure. The first one in the Stephen Pressfield canon is The War of Art. Okay. Okay. Break through the blocks and win your inner creative battles. And it's all about resistance because anybody in the creative field is dealing with um mm, constant mm -hmm. so then and then it, it, and it builds and i can't remember which or, order it goes in but this is one that i well there's do the work mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the artist's journey turning pro and turning pro is actually in, in all this conversation really interesting because you do not have to be this is not necessarily related to strictly being a creative but turning pro is really about the idea when you make the conscious, intentional choice to go from amateur to professional means you're showing up regularly. Mm -hmm. You are taking mm -hmm. responsibility for what you are doing. So that's not necessarily about getting paid for something. It's not about the fact that um, you become a professional because somebody published your book. You're a professional when you decide to treat this. Mm, I love it. As, I love as it. a profession, a vocation, and that would get very much into Rick Rubin as part of his 
which is also deeply rooted in Eastern philosophy. And then on a practical level, so good. Nobody wants to read your shit. <laughs> okay. That's great. Because that is, it's very, very humbling, but it's also, hmm. it's about, it's like, you know, this is the truth. It's like, nobody cares, you know, more about you. So um, it's really practical step-by-step -step things about how to work through that process, how to keep writing, rewriting, how to show up you know, professionally. And then the other one I think is so fantastic is this less known, but I was so helpless. Talent is overrated. Hmm. Okay. And this guy, um, what's really separates world-class performers from everybody else. Hmm. It kind of goes hand in hand with the grit because he studied all these amazing people, including, oh, and the author, by the way, is Jeff Colvin senior editor at large at fortune. Um, okay. but so, so for instance, he studied these um, Hungarian women who became chess masters, who not dissimilar to Tiger Woods were really trained by their yeah. dad, but the dad had no, was not a superstar. Yeah. I've read about guy. that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So it gets into the idea that one of my favorites, you know, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. So it's the mm. whole idea. And I, there's so many great examples who aren't necessarily always hugely popular, but I'm obsessed with Tom Brady the same way because he was not a starter in high school, was not the starter in college, was like 270 something in the NFL draft pick. Hmm. And now mm -hmm. is the greatest player of all time because he didn't just work harder. He worked smarter. He, he asked tons of questions. Why it's like, why does everybody train this way? I have a different body. I have different mm -hmm, goals. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I need to be lean and fast. So why does somebody want me to keep lifting heavier weights? Shouldn't I be doing as an example, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. lighter weights differently? He eats differently. So his, anyway, so anyway, I'm very into the, you know, Michael Jordan's another one was, you know, not picked. So I, I love examples of people who had tremendous success, um, who weren't the most gifted or talented at their, oh, thing. yeah. I think you would like Peak by Anders Anders Ericsson. It's like the new science of peak performance. And he talked about athletes a little bit, but he is the guy that Malcolm Gladwell misquoted in the <laughs> 10,000 hours article and said like, you just need 10,000 hours and you're amazing. And Anders Ericsson is like, I, yes. And it's not just a random old 10,000 hours of practice will make you an expert. And then you'll be at peak performance It's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. And he really goes into what deliberate practice means. Yeah. I That's know it a sounds big a lot part yeah. of, of the Jeff Coleman book. And to that, on that final note, this might have to be like a bonus episode. I have this book. I, I mean, they're books I keep around my desk all the time that are never far from my, you know, grasp, but Late Bloomers by Rich Carlgaard, who is, hmm. I believe, the publisher of Forbes. Oh, right. It sounds like a Range by uh, David Epstein, too. <laughs> Similar, like Late Bloomers or like, I, uh, I forget which tennis star it was, who was like, didn't, wasn't really a tennis pro, like played soccer, did this, did whatever. And then it's like, I guess I'll, I'll stick with tennis because he had this range of experiences. And so he, he like, I can't remember who it was, it was like a, theoretically a late bloomer in the tennis world. And then it's like, whoever it was, someone, some big time, but like, yeah, interesting, interesting. I love it. This is fun. Well, I could do this all day with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Iggy. You're fantastic. Oh, it's I'm been really... so great talking with you, Barbara. It's been very exciting, fun time. Likewise. And I want to thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. If you are looking for on-camera or public speaking training, please shoot me a note via my website, ableintermedia.com, and be sure to download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera. And as always, please hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.